Welcome to another episode of the View Charlotte Real Estate and Entertainment Podcast. My name is Jeremy Orden, one of the partners with the Orden Writer Group at Allen Tate. Each week we will break down a real estate topic, share stories related to the topic, or have guests with experience in various facets of real estate, and then discuss something about our city that makes it unique. This could be restaurants, things to do, fun facts, or well, virtually anything about Charlotte because Charlotte is such an amazing city with limitless opportunities. The idea of continuing to educate our clients to the real estate market so they can make the best decision for their family is a commitment we stand behind, and hopefully each of these episodes will leave at least a little pearl of wisdom with our listeners. Let's get started. For this episode, I'm joined by one of my most trusted advisors and a leader who genuinely inspires her staff while providing the utmost support and guidance. Katrina Richards is the Regional Vice President of Allen Tate Realtors, overseeing offices in the Charlotte region. One of the things that I value most about Katrina's approach is that she believes in supporting her agents and embraces the changes to the real estate industry that we've seen develop over the last decade specifically. Additionally, Katrina is a wealth of knowledge who is dedicated to our community and extremely active in local organizations. Katrina Richards, welcome to the podcast. I am so thankful to be here, and I cannot think of a better way to start off my Friday morning. Excellent. Well, I know how busy you are, but I appreciate you taking the time to sit down with me today to discuss a very important topic. And when we were discussing topics, I could think of no one better to have this conversation with than you. Wow, we're going to have to talk about your standards, Jeremy. (laughs) (laughs) And we're off to a really great start there. For this week, our topic that we're going to be discussing is how technology has evolved the real estate industry over the last two decades, and specifically how an organization such as ours has adapted in order to improve the customer experience. I know that you've been vital in ushering in changes, so I was eager to sit down with you and have this conversation. However, before we jump into this discussion, can you give our audience some background on you and how you came to be the regional vice president of Valentate? Absolutely. I uh, moved to Charlotte back in 1996 after graduating college and became a school teacher and taught third grade for about two years and simultaneously was a bartender at a local restaurant. And at that time, a woman would always come in who was a flight attendant and she would sit at the bar and study. And I started to inquire about what she was doing because she had already had a job. She was telling me she was looking into going into real estate. So I was intrigued by that because alongside of that, I was playing some softball leagues in the summer and worked with an agent at a firm who said that I was in the wrong profession and I needed to get out of teaching and get into real estate. And I thought they'd lost their minds. But I went back, taught my second year of school and said, you know what? This just is not for me. I need to get into real estate. So I ran and got my license and sort of interviewed, interestingly enough, through the woman who was studying as I was bartending and finding out all the different firms she was talking to what she liked and didn't like about each one of them. She landed at the Allen Tate Company. So shortly thereafter, I called the company and became an agent, quickly got into leadership and moved from a sales manager into a broker in charge role. And then most recently into a regional vice president role. And it's 24 years later. It's been a wild ride. I've loved every minute of it. 
one of the things that really jumps out at me is that you have in common with my mother as well as other agents on my team is that you have education in your background. My mother's philosophy has always been that real estate is an educational process and our job is to educate our clients to the market so they can make the best decision for their families. How do you think that your experience in education translated into your real estate career? Well, it's, you know, it definitely has helped me a lot. And I always try to reinforce with my parents that the six years of college did not go wasted because I have training opportunities every single day and different personalities every single day. And sometimes it still feels like I'm talking to third graders. But um, but nonetheless, um, I think it helps me because I learned a lot about people's different learning styles, which made me a better educator. And I can gauge that you have to have some tactile, you know, different types of stimulation to keep people engaged. And I'm still teaching every day. I mean, whether it's small groups, large groups, on panels, you know, talking at conventions, the public speaking aspect has been huge for me as well. So what made you decide to transition from the agent side of our industry into the leadership role? It really wasn't something I chose to do Uh, about two years into my career as an agent, my broker in charge came to me and asked if I would consider becoming a sales manager. And at that time, it was at our Valentine location, one of the largest branches. And I thought she had lost her mind because I was, you know, in my 20s and I didn't know anything. I'd only been in the business two years. So she apparently saw some things in me that I did not yet see in myself. And shortly after, I said, you know what, I'm going to give it a shot. And I did get into being the sales manager of that branch where I once sold. And a couple years later, I didn't have selling out of my system yet. So I transitioned back into sales for about three years. And then when that same broker in charge retired, she tapped my shoulder again and said, I would love for you to take over when I retire. And that's what essentially put me into the the leadership positions I'm in currently. So in the years since I've known you, I've always identified you as being one of the biggest change advocates out there. Sometimes I've I've done that begrudgingly, um, but you've always really embraced the concept of adapting or fade away, and you've continued to push me outside of my comfort zone to help our team continue to grow. Where do you think this mentality regarding change came from? Oh, gosh. One of the things I love about you most is you ask really good questions. <laughs> um, I'd have to say I was very fortunate that I grew up playing on team-related sports. So you always had to have a strategy, you know, depending on who you were playing, you always had to know what you were up against and you had to come up with a new way to make it through that practice or that game or, uh, you know, a new offense or a new defense. So I think I've just transitioned that into, there's a lot of change in this business and you're not going to stop it. And if you are going to push back against it, you're never going to grow. So you have to have, people receptive on the other end, but you also have to be very convincing on the side of the person bringing to the change that it is ultimately going to be best for the other person to accept it. So I think just zigging and zagging with different game plans throughout sports has helped me get get to this point. So let's take our audience on a little bit of a flashback to when my mother started in real estate in 1985 and the old published MLS books. She would literally thumb through a book seeking properties to present to clients. She had to take her listing photos to the one hour camera place to be developed. 
What was the state of technology when you began your career in 1998? <laughs> exactly like your mom's in 1985, actually. So uh, as you're saying that, I'm, I'm having my flashbacks myself because in this world, you know, we have digital technology and photos. And sometimes one of the complaints is how long it takes to upload pictures into systems. And I just have to laugh because I'm thinking you guys have no idea what it was like. We literally had to update the MLS books if we were on the opportunity time at the branches and thumb through to find the MLS number in order. And we had to go to people's um, offices in order to get keys to show property. We didn't have the super lockboxes that are highly secure on the doors of our listings. And yes, one hour photo, you had to go and get 10 copies. And Jeremy, I'll add to that. The, the pitiful thing is it was only 24 years ago. And not only did you have to go get the one hour photo, come back to the office and hope you didn't expose the film to have to go back out to the house to retake the pictures, to go back to the one hour photo, to do it all over again. We had to take a glue stick to thick paper stock and glue the photos onto our brochures to go into our listings. So I just love <laughs> hearing about this because, you know, at the time that you were going ahead and glue gunning photos, I was actually working at Allen Tate in the newly formed home services department. At the time, it was really cutting edge because Mr. Tate had this vision of connecting clients and customers with proven service providers and connecting utilities. So we did a lot of communication via fax. Like we didn't even have a scanner in the office. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> and I'll tell you, to hear the sound of a fax sometimes freaks me out because I'm like, what is that noise? What is that noise? I mean, we had the old big box computers that took up half your desk space um, when I started. So it, we have come a long way for sure. So in the last decade of experience that I've been in this industry full time, I've seen things change pretty drastically. And I like to think that my team in particular has really embraced technology to adapt to an industry that's constantly evolving. What would you say that one of the greatest evolutions in the real estate industry has been in your time in the industry? Oh, wow. Um, you know, it's interesting because you mentioned the the visionary that um, Mr. Tate was, and he, he surely was, and he is missed to this day. They, uh, it makes me think back to we used to have our own internal company showing service. And I think showing time and having one centralized location um, has been has been huge for our industry uh, because back in the day you would have to call offices directly and try to coordinate showings and and the efficiencies that that has helped create for us I think has been huge but honestly there's this not there are so many things that have helped but I think that's probably one of the key ones years ago and it was interesting that we start as a company doing it until centralized showings started and showing time now yeah, that actual original showing service through Allen Tate, that was based in the same building that Home Services was. So I saw those people on a daily basis just take phone calls and then have to reach out to call the seller in order to get time approved. I really like your answer. However, mine's a little bit different. I was going to say Zillow because I think that they took information that was really once proprietary and only available to licensed agents who pay a significant fee and put that information in front of consumers. And it really shifted the balance. We could, of course, talk about the way that, you know, the shift is both positive and extremely negative. But I think that private information and becoming public 
was really one of the biggest game changers that I've seen. I, I certainly do. And I think at first there was a big fear factor involved in that. And we as realtors had to had to pivot and accept that and, you know, welcome these iBuyers into the market and figure out how we could work to help our clients and customers instead of looking at it as a negative, as a negative. Yeah, it was almost a territorial type position at one time instead of it being something a little bit more, let's just say, organic and, and perhaps welcoming. So I know that our company, Allen Tate Realtors, has been at the forefront of embracing technology. I think there's a lot of real estate companies that talk about technology and the creation of new systems or approaches to say that they have something new and it doesn't necessarily benefit or change or improve the customer experience. All of the technology that I've seen that our company has rolled out seems to be focused specifically on improving the customer experience. Can you talk to me about some of the ways that like these, what, what these tools are and how they impact the customer experience? You know, I think I think we have so many, Jeremy, this could be a separate podcast in and of itself. Um, I think that one of the things that we look at as our senior leadership team is two different things. We always want to look to see what's going to help our agents. And the second is what's going to improve the customer experience. And back in the day, you'll probably remember when you were in home services and I was starting out, allentate.com was one of the websites that it didn't matter if you were with Allen Tate or you were a client working with a different company. You went on to allentate.com because it was the most user-friendly website, had the most data, was updated the quickest from MLS within 15 minutes, not within hours of getting the feeds. So I think that was one thing that helped improve customer service. I do think our showing time helped it. I think when we have home services and there's a list of vendors that could easily be accessed, that has helped the customer service experience. And heck, the, the support staff that we have behind our agents alone has an impact on the customer experience, although it's all behind the scenes stuff that the consumer doesn't see that we are doing, whether it is training our agents, keeping them updated on market conditions, anything we can do to keep them abreast of the situation to treat the customer the best is our focus. In my opinion, Alan Tate's market report is the best tool I've ever seen created from a company side. I know our home search tools are really incredible, completely next level and, and much better than, in my opinion, like any other consumer-facing search. However, the market report is an ongoing analysis of a customer's property. Can you explain to our audience what market report is and the importance of it? Because I'm sure your description is going to be far better than mine. <laughs> I'm not so sure about that. You're pretty eloquent with words. <laughs> um, so we have a couple of options now. Essentially, what our goal is to always keep customers updated on where they are with their home prices. Because to your point earlier about Zillow, right? Zillow was pretty evolutionary. It came into the marketplace. But if you ever look at some of these estimates, they're not always the most accurate. So we want to kind of, it, it gives you a good range and some of them can be spot on, but they're all over the place depending on which estimate you look at. So I think we want to bring the reality of what's happening in the very, very, specific market area to consumers. So market report, we have a couple different uh, options that you can be updated monthly, you can be updated uh, bi-monthly every 90 days. You could also do a zip code search. And the goal is 
a consumer can easily get on there, check out the statistics, know how many active properties there are, know how many closed properties there are, all in close proximity, if not the same exact neighborhood of where they currently own a property. I, I think it's just so important in the same way that you know people meet with their financial planner or you know review their investments. Like your home is your largest investment. So staying attuned to its value as it changes with our ever-changing market, I think it's just so important. I have a strong belief that there's only four factors that sell a home. Location, price, staging, and marketing. In fact, we're going to be doing an entire podcast episode on this very topic. But as an agent, it's my job to successfully market a property for my clients. I think that our team does the best job of anybody in properly marketing properties. However, our company has such amazing resources in how properties are marketed on a global level. So in regards to technology, what is our firm doing to help sellers get more eyes on their properties? So I think we've got, as far as on a global level, probably one of the best things we've done is partnered with AdWorks, and that really helps Our agents get everything out. You get 7,000 impressions for your listings. So as soon as they go live, that is what we are promised by the AdWorks campaigns. Agents can also send those out to their sphere. So anybody, short, short and sweet is, anybody who's online and might be searching for keywords without getting into too much detail, such as home, Charlotte, Fort Mill, wherever it might be, that listing can pop up just like the shoes that you might have talked about wanting to buy, and then bam, this listing shows up in your face that you may want to go see. So that has helped get a lot of eyes on it. Also, we have our um, joint venture and partnership with Howard Hanna, which really now allows us to span the almost the entire East Coast and is a great network for us, not to mention leading real estate companies of the world globally with our listings that are seen across the world. I love that you highlighted those tools. And, And I think you're right. The days of the local audience being the exclusive buyers for properties, I mean, in my opinion, those are over and we're truly working with a global audience. How do you think our firm is positioned to work with that global audience? I think we're really, really fortunate in that we have got an entire relocation company. And with that comes staff and the president who goes out even overseas to the international Um, conventions and events to spread the Allen Tate name and everything that we can offer. We have a business development team. They go out and they're talking to large corporations, small corporations, individuals all of the time, trying to capture some of that audience before it's announced in the newspapers and wherever we might hear it, because by then it's too late. I recently had a podcast conversation with my personal broker in charge, Hillary Broadway, and we discussed the importance of a firm, meaning who that agent is affiliated with and works for. You've had a very successful career in real estate and leadership. So can you tell me why you think that the firm is so important? You know, absolutely. It's really interesting because we just sent out a survey amongst our leadership team and we put a bunch of value propositions out and hands down the brand recognition was number one of being important and i think i think what that means is our agents we feel confident they rarely have to go out and explain who the allen tate company is or what the company stands for because we're over 65 years running and what that means to agents to staff to clients and consumers is 
that shows a sign of consistency. It shows a sign of inability to change with the times. We have endured some of the worst recessions, you know, not too long ago that we have lived through and thrived through. So I think that that is what makes the firm very important. You don't want to be the pop-up firm that might come in during a good time and leave during a bad time. So we're fortunate enough that we work for one of those firms. Circling back to our conversation about the emerging technology and tools to improve the customer experience, can you share with me and our audience, obviously, any of the new tools that we have on the horizon? So glad we're doing this today. <laughs> we actually do. We are. We have just announced a new home concierge program. So long and short of that is it is going to offer one-on-one actual person on the other end of the phone helping our buyers and sellers through whatever they might need to move and then after they move what they might need so we will have a list of vendors our agents can add in their favorite vendors the uh, consumer will have a dashboard that they from which they can work it will also give them updates on equity in their home so it's gonna it is going to offer so many things and really easy access. It's going to help back to the, you know, you, you think history comes back full circle. We're going to go back to helping with those utility connections. And this will be a no charge service that we are going to offer to our clients. And I'm going to get a royalty because I was there when version <laughs> like 1.0 was, was rolled out, right? I will make sure that the powers that be know that that is your request. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. So especially with something like this concierge service, how is the customer experience factor into the tools that the company is creating? So if I understand the question correctly, um, our goal of this is we believe this is still a very high touch business. And we want to make sure that rather than you calling and getting a recording on a phone in order to do your service, to, to connect something, you will have a person on the other end facilitating it for you. So what we're hoping is that the customer the customer experience, it, it makes it less stressful for them. They You're juggling enough things when you're going through a move, whether it's moving out, you got family and you've got schools to worry about and all that. We want to take that burden off of you as much as we can and take it over for you. I love that answer. And I agree with you. I think that we live in a world where so many people just want to like open up an app on their phone and find what they're looking for, click on it and have it delivered in two days. But when you actually need something, there's nothing that replaces being able to pick up the phone and call somebody. Like I think of a doctor's office or, you know, your best friend, like that personal one-on-one -on -one connection is so important. In the last five years, we've seen the explosion and partial implosion of the iBuyer market. We've also seen multiple companies enter the marketplace attempting to be, let's call them disruptors to the established agent and client relationship. Billions and billions of dollars have been lost on these ventures. Why do you think that these technology companies and so-called disruptors have been unsuccessful entering into the real estate industry? So I almost look at that as a rhetorical question, right? Because you put in there technology companies. We are in a people business. And I still firmly believe that despite all of the technologies that we've got. And yes, some are great and they can create efficiencies, but it can never replace a human being actually pulling 
information, current, having compassion, empathy, understanding for what is on the other side. So I think there becomes a tipping point where the technology goes away and people want the human factor back involved and those technology companies and you know some wall street concepts and investors and all that haven't figured out that piece of it yet and it's funny because this almost immediately circles back to what you said about the new concierge service because people do want to have that interaction they want to know the testimonials of a company and they want to be able to talk these things out instead of just having one size fits all. So if I'm understanding you correctly, how close do you think that we are to the days of swipe left to buy a house? <laughs> oh my gosh. Are you referencing a dating site as a married man? <laughs> Talking to a married woman, Jeremy? Um, anyway, so I would hope that we are never there unless we are there maybe for investors who are not emotionally attached to a property. I think we learned a lot through the pandemic, quite honestly, about how tedious and stressful it is, not only on realtors, but also on clients to buy houses sight unseen. And you know, and you're paying a price for it, and it's one of your largest investments, and I just hope that we would never get to that phase. <laughs> I 100% agree. Obviously, you're a massive advocate for individual home ownership. I've, I've heard you talk about this in meetings before. However, you also have extensive experience working with and coaching investors. It seems like every investor, and wisely so, is looking for an inside edge on getting the right property. What sort of tools and technologies does our company make available to help support this client base? So I would even... I think that we have a lot to offer internally, but I really would attribute a lot of this to the MLS. I think that we can give a lot of historical data. Anybody who sits here and tells you what's going to happen in the future, you need to run away to them, run away from them as fast as you can because we do not have crystal balls. So I think what we have to be very mindful of when we're dealing with investors is just saturating them with history and what typically happens based on where interest rates are, based on where inventory is, based on what's happened in the past can sometimes predict the best future. Um, but other than that, if you have somebody that says you need to buy this now because it's going to appreciate for 20% in the next five years, I mean, get out. That is not the right person that you want to be working with to buy these investments. You've witnessed a lot of evolution in our industry. However, you've also been that advocate for change within our company, helping to keep us at the cutting edge of functional technology and tools to improve the customer experience. Where do you think this advocacy comes from? You know, I think what I love so much about this company and firm, we listen. So we don't only listen to, if we get a client complaint, we listen. How could we have maybe done something a little bit better? We've got advisory councils that involve our agents to say, what can we do as a company to improve? What are you hearing out on the streets? I'm also very fortunate sometimes to be married to a realtor <laughs> for the past 15 years who's been actively listing and selling. So it means I can stay very attuned and in touch with what's going on on the streets and not become a distant leader um, that doesn't hear what's happening. So all of that helps me become a huge advocate um, for change and increasing whether it's technology or customer service. So where do you think that we're headed? Do clients still need an agent to buy or sell a property? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and I think now more than ever. I mean, I think we did learn a ton again, back to the sight unseen offers. We learned a lot during the pandemic. 
And now we're coming back full circle to having some inventory to see and agents being able to educate on what's going on in the current market conditions because where we are, even from three and four months ago, when the last house sold and agents are seeing that price and clients are seeing that price and they're thinking that they can't afford to purchase, that may not actually be the case because we can't look at even those numbers necessarily and tie them into today's prices. So I think now more than ever with the shift of the market, you, you've got to get an agent to keep current and have a pulse on it. So I'm going to ask you to keep your fortune teller hat on for one more question. <laughs> As we've discussed, we've seen listings go from phone book like publications to clients being able to pull up any property in the world and request a showing with a click of their phone screen. Information seems easier than ever to access. However, the interpretation of that information and the actual process seems more convoluted than ever. What do you think the solution is? I mean, I really think it's simple. I, I don't overthink this. I think that as a consumer, you need to find a team like the Orden Writer Group that has a slew and a team of people behind it that stay educated. You know, this is great, you doing podcasts and put taking your time to educate around it. So my answer to that is find a knowledgeable, reputable realtor who is going to have your best interests in mind to make sense of all the noise that is out there by the media and that can bring it into a localized and common sense type mentality because you really need that because you got to shut out everything that you're hearing and realize what's going on in your own marketplace. All right. Finally, this is my softball question and not saying softball because, you know. Because <laughs> I played. Because no. you played softball. <laughs> um, but, you know, this is a total setup question. Oh, gosh. With so many firms out there and so many different approaches to the real estate process, why should someone either choose to work with an Allen Tate agent or become an Allen Tate agent? You know, clearly I'm biased. I have not been with any other company other than the Allen Tate company. But I think that one of the reasons why is because I have seen people come and go in this industry. I have seen some leave for the right reasons. I have seen some leave for all the wrong reasons. And we are fortunate enough that some of those people are never too proud to come back to us. And I think that that speaks volumes for what it means to be an Allen Tate agent. I think the culture that we've created, although we are a large company, each office has its individual company. We have a variety of sizes, right? So you can go to a small, medium, or a large firm. You, there are just so many choices that you have within our firm that I cannot see somebody going somewhere else, but that's me. And again, it is a biased opinion. See, I told you it was a softball <laughs> question. Katrina, thank you so much for being our guest today. Was it as bad as you thought it was going to be? No, but you promised me a water and I haven't seen it yet. So <laughs> <laughs> now I'm mortified. Well, despite the fact that I promised you a water and I failed to deliver, <laughs> would you come back and have another conversation with me in the future? Oh my gosh, absolutely. I would love to. So that's a much more enthusiastic response than what Maddie gave me when I asked her. Thank you to our guest, Katrina Richards, Alan Tate, Regional Vice President. For this week's entertainment topic, we're going to be discussing one of my favorite topics outside of real estate, music, but specifically music education. I'm joined today by Fred Updegraft, a professional musician and owner of Regent Park Music Lessons. Fred has been a professional musician for years and is a member of the Billy Joel tribute band, The Stranger, where he is the bassist and occasional drummer. 
Fred, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So before we get into our conversation about music education, can you tell me how long you've been a musician for? Well, I started on piano at about age five, so I've been playing for my whole life. I uh, started playing the drums as a teenager around 14, started guitar around the same time. And then when I started teaching is when I picked up the bass. So I've been playing guitar since I'm 10 years old. I was never able to transition into that gigging musician role, probably due to, you know, overwhelming stage fright and the, and the inability to keep more than like three songs in my head at a time. How did you transition from playing instruments at home to playing in front of a live audience? Well, for me, it started in church. My dad was a worship leader, and so I started playing drums as a teenager, and he had just put an album out. And so I asked him, I said, I wanted to, you know, come and play with you at the church. And he said, if you can learn my entire record note for note beginning to end and play it for me, then you can come play for me. So I spent the next, you know, few months in the garage just studying and practicing and eventually I got to the point where I could play the whole thing and performed it for him and said okay come on out let's do it and uh, during that time you know playing for church you learn three or four songs and for me at that time was a lot to prepare for and you know um, then we did a uh, an event about a year later where we did his entire record and so that was you know preparing about eight or nine songs as opposed to four and then when I joined The Stranger, uh, I had a, I was given a set list of, you know, like 40 songs or something. And so that was really intimidating at first. But I had a few months to prepare. And I was, I mean, night and day, you know, from the moment I woke up until I went to bed that night, any moment that I had, I was just practicing, practicing, practicing. And, and uh, you know, for the first few shows, made a couple mistakes here and there. But the just like anything else, the you know, uh, with more practice, you get better at learning lots of songs and memorizing. So I know that your band travels extensively playing everything from, you know, small venues to, you know, big festivals. What's your favorite part about being a working musician? Well, definitely doing the performances, playing the live music, but also the camaraderie and the brotherhood with the band members. Um, something that I feel very lucky about with this band in particular is there's very little conflict and there's hardly ever any kind of drama. Everybody in the band is just there to, you know, everybody's a professional and everybody has a great time and we're all really close friends and brothers and, you know, so it's, uh, it's, it's just good to do what I love to do best with people that I love to do it with. I think that transitions perfectly into this week's topic. Charlotte is really a hotbed for music right now. We have venues that support up-and-coming artists, we have an active independent punk and hard rock scene, and we're a destination for really every national touring artist. However, whatever somebody's ultimate goal is when it comes to an instrument, they need to start somewhere with learning. As someone who's been a music teacher for over 10 years now, what's your approach to teaching a beginner? Well, it all starts out with the, the, the hardest thing to get past first is the physical side because there are many aspects that, you know, in music that you have to train and, and build skill. But the first kind of road, uh, the, the road bump to get over is getting your hands to physically be able to do it. So the first thing that I'll typically give is a, a technical exercise that's easy to understand and relatively easy to implement. Um, but you know, get, it's very repetitive, and it's and it's built to, to to teach technique and to build strength and make your hands able to start doing that thing. And then I also think the most important thing, especially with young kids, is to keep them 
having the desire to learn how to do it. And that comes from kind of looking at what their individual interests are, what style of music they like, what's their favorite song, what's their favorite band. And so usually at the end of the lesson, I will start to work with them on one of those songs. I love that approach. And, you know, in full disclosure, you taught both of my kids a variety of instruments. So I saw firsthand and... I think the song was High Hopes that you were teaching Anastasia on the That's piano. Right, yeah. Yeah, I never need to hear that piano line again for the rest <laughs> of my life. But she practiced it, and, and I think your approach is probably the best one. So, you know, when I was first learning how to play guitar, I took lessons at a local music store, and let's call it the curriculum, was really all over the place. Like, there was no connection from one week to the next. It just seemed like whatever he was in the mood to play is what I learned. I know that we would work on, like, basic chords one week, scales the next week. He would throw in some songs that were popular but not really associated with the techniques that he was attempting to teach me. How do you differentiate between someone's desire to learn specific songs versus developing musical technique? Well, I think that, again, that comes down to the most important thing is to keep them interested. So you want to be working on things that they want to learn how to play. But it also comes down to who are you learning from? Because, you know, as you kind of stated, like there are, there are, uh, teaching is an, is a different skill entirely. And so if you don't have some kind of structure that is intuitive and, and that complements what it is that you're trying to achieve, then it does kind of feel like, work you know it doesn't it doesn't feel like you're you're working towards what it is that you want to learn and so finding the right teacher is a, is a really important part of that so with regent park music lessons what types of instruments do you teach i teach drums guitar piano and keyboards and bass and at what age are you instructing people Typically, I start around age seven. I've taken six-year-olds before, but most of the time their attention span just can't make it through the entire lesson, and also they need to have a phys enough physical strength in their hands to be able to play the instrument, but usually around age seven and up from there, yeah. So I'm in my mid-40s. I cannot tell you how many times a friend will come over to our house, and we have guitars literally everywhere in our house. And they'll see the guitars and go, oh, I tried to learn, but I quit. What's the right approach for these people? Well, it just depends on what your goals are when you start, you know, working on it and trying to improve. And it also, you know, again, it comes down to that staying motivated because learning a musical instrument is something that takes determination. It takes perseverance. It takes patience, you know, and those are all things that you learn by learning to play a musical instrument. And so, you know, regardless of what your age range is, you know, you want to just make sure that the time that you're giving is working towards a specific goal that's unique to you, whether that be to play songs that you like or to write your own songs or even to try and make a living playing music. It all just, you know, the path that you take depends on what the end result is that you are looking for. So I'm definitely going to have my own personal bias towards the next question that I'm going to ask you. However, it seems like today there's limitless, you know, let's focus on guitar because I know that best. There's limitless guitar teachers on YouTube. There's online lesson courses. There's Zoom instructors. What's your opinion on the difference between in-person instruction and something virtual? 
Well, the first thing is when you're in person, then you can actually not just show the student how it should be done, but you can help them as they are trying it. So if their hand is not quite positioned exactly right, you can go and help make that adjustment and say, see, this is how your hand is supposed to look. But then also, all of, with all the information that's available online, um, which, you know, YouTube is a fantastic resource for any musician, and I highly encourage you to use it, um, there's no structure, though. So when you have a good teacher, they have years of experience um, in how to take someone with your specific desires and, and, and what you're looking for and, and getting you to that specific goal, whereas everything online is a little more generalized or just sparse. I mean, there's, there's, you can learn how to do every little specific thing, but none of it is organized in a way where it can tell you what to practice. You have to put input into the computer to say, I want to learn how to do this specific thing. Um, and I encourage my students to use those resources, you know, like outside of the lessons. If they want to be learning a solo or a song or a technique, you know, do that as much as you can. But it is not a replacement to in-person lessons. I put it on the same level of, you know, maybe like a personal trainer. You can go online and you can watch a video. You can go out and you can replicate that. However, nothing's going to replace that in-person experience of somebody looking at exactly what you're doing and being able to coach you on that. Absolutely. So now I really want to focus on an area that I have personal experience with you, and that's on the instruction of children. Although I have played guitar for longer than I have not played guitar, I know from the beginning that I was not qualified to teach my kids. I don't think that they would have the patience to learn from me, and I can guarantee that I don't have the patience to be able to teach them. I saw firsthand how much progress they made in their experiences with you. Why do you think learning an instrument is so important for a child? Well, as I stated uh, earlier, I think that by learning a musical instrument, you learn that, uh, you know, you learn patience and you learn that like hard work and dedication and sticking to it and not giving up on it, you know, will lead to good results. And, and when, when, a, when a child plays a drum beat or a guitar riff for the first time, you know, that, that sense of uh, them being proud of themselves, of doing something really cool and, and something that's difficult is uh, a really big motivator and, 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 and encourages them to, to feel like they can do whatever that they, you know, anything that they want to do, they can accomplish if they put, their, put the work in, put their mind to it. I really love that approach and that philosophy. And I know I've mentioned this to you in the past, but the reason why I thought it was so important for my kids to learn how to play an instrument I mean, not to fulfill like my fantasy of creating my own version of like the Partridge Family Band, was regardless of what instrument it is, we live in this world of instant gratification. If I want to know something, I can look it up on the internet. If I want to buy something, I can click a buy now button and it'll be in my doorstep like that afternoon or tomorrow. Learning to play an instrument is really the polar opposite of instant gratification and becomes more of a journey of learning, growing, and understanding. And I think it teaches patience, discipline, and an understanding of art that's really important and goes against our entire culture of instant gratification that exists today. I completely agree. It's one of the few avenues uh, left where, you know, in order for them to have that entertainment or to have that 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 gratification it takes a, a lot of work and dedication and patience to achieve 
So I love the fact that you're a multi-instrumentalist. When it comes to this, though, what's your favorite instrument to teach on? You know, I get asked similar questions all the time. As far as teaching is concerned, uh, I don't know that I have a favorite because the aspect of teaching that I love is seeing the progress that is made and seeing how that makes the student feel and the encouragement that they get from that and being able to, you know, see the same spark that I remember having as a kid and a love for music and a desire to get better. Seeing that get stirred into someone else is really what makes teaching uh, rewarding. As far as playing the various instruments, um, I can break that down a little better. Uh, when it comes to just sitting down to play music for the sake of playing music for my own, you know, kind of therapy, piano is my go-to. Uh, when it comes to live performance, I like drums and bass because you can, the, the rhythm section gets to just be there in the moment with the music and listen and enjoy it. I don't have to worry about switching patches with pedals and everything. I can just be in the moment and enjoy it. When it comes to improvisation, guitar would be my, my first choice. Is there an age that you feel is too old for someone to get started? I'm asking because a certain friend of mine who will remain nameless is really wanting to learn piano. This was her New Year's resolution, and I keep telling her to contact you, and she hasn't done it yet. Okay. Well, um, again, I think that boils down to your goals because, um, for instance, I have a bass playing student who's in his late 50s, maybe early 60s. We've been working for about a year and a half. Um, I will say that as you get older, you know, learning new things takes more time, you know, because kids are sponges and they can just pick stuff up really fast. Um, but he's playing sign sealed delivered on the bass and hitting all the little details and stuff. So, you know, he went from having a really hard time doing this kind of new physical thing that he's not used to doing to now he's playing Motown songs. So I think that uh, you know, your motivations and your goals are really what determine, you know, what's feasible and what isn't. Um, but also, like, my band leader didn't start playing music professionally until he was 40, you know, and now that's his bread and butter. That's what he does. And so it really just depends on how much work you put in and how you determined you are to achieve those goals. Do you focus on individual or group lessons? Uh, individual. I have taught group lessons in the past. I do teach a music theory class at a college around the street from my house, but, uh, but pretty much all of my lessons otherwise are individual. One of the things that's always impressed me about you is that you put on the performances with your students. Can you tell me about the group recordings you do with your students? Oh, yeah. So... Uh, there's been a number of little projects that I've done just for fun with the students, and this is something that, that, that they always love, is, um, well, during their lesson time, we will have learned a song beginning to end, and I'll use the studio recording of that song as kind of the skeleton, as the framework. And then when, during their lesson, we will record video and audio of them playing along with the song. And I'll do that with... Uh, a few of my students kind of put a little band together and uh, then piece all the video footage together and mix the audio and then you have a, a, a performance video of all the students playing together. How do you think this focused learning and then performance approach works with them learning an instrument? Well, it's all about motivation because when you have a, uh, a final product and something that you have to say, you know, something to be proud of, something you say, I, I accomplished that, I did that, 
Um, and it's something that's really cool to look at, something to show your friends and everything. Um, I think that it just is more than anything is a motivator. It's something that gets them excited about learning the next thing. Maybe if any of my early teachers had used an approach like that, I'd be able to retain more than like a couple of songs in my memory at one time. <laughs> well, I think that again, that just comes with, with practice. Cause I felt that way as well at one point, you know, like memorizing a lot of music was something that was difficult to do, but enforcing myself to get ready for gigs and having to just practice doing that over and over and over I continued to get better at memorizing many songs at once. So obviously there's other teachers and approaches to learning an instrument. Why should somebody consider Regent Park music lessons? Well especially if you live close by um, I have a studio space in my house where we have all kinds of bells and whistles similar to what you have here maybe not <laughs> not quite as nice as yours but uh, yeah so there's you know it, I have a good space where any instrument really can be worked on and it's a it's in my house so it's a really safe and comforting environment um, and I have, you know, as far as why to take lessons with me, I have a very well-rounded kind of, you know, approach. I've been teaching for just over 10 years on multiple instruments, and my kind of philosophy for learning music is based in uh, how to get good at many different instruments and not just focused in on one, and I think that that, uh, you know, my, I have very good retention. Um, a lot of my students have been coming to me for three-plus years, um, and so I, I don't know what it is that I'm doing right, but I'm doing something right. I, I can say firsthand, yes, you absolutely are. So something that I like to do with guests such as yourself is to go through, you know, let's call them rapid fire questions. I'll warn our audience. Some of these are incredibly dorky guitar geek questions. I love it. But are you down for a series of let's these? Let's do it. Yeah. Okay. What is your favorite instrument to compose on? Piano. What is your favorite guitar brand if you had to pick one? Ah, uh, Fender. What do you think the perfect first-time guitar is for somebody to buy? Uh, the Yamaha FG series, acoustic. What's the favorite venue that you've played? Uh, the Fillmore here in Charlotte, and we're going to be there February 10th. Best or... live concert you've seen? <laughs> uh, you know, uh, probably Sting and Peter Gabriel. Um, that, that was an amazing show. Your biggest musical influence? Oh, gosh. Um, that's a tough one. I'm going to have, I'll just say family. Honestly, my grandmother taught me piano and my dad was a worship leader. So at, at the very beginning, I looked up to them the most. What is one piece of music or album that everybody should listen to? Oh goodness. Uh, Hmm. That's a tough one. Something that everyone should listen to. I know this is supposed to be the lightning responses, and I'm not giving it to you for this one. Oh, geez. My favorite all-around record is probably Ten Summoner's Tales by Sting. Um, it is an enough, it's poppy enough that everyone can listen to it and enjoy it, but it's also masterful enough that no matter what your skill level is, any musician can learn something from it. What is the saddest chord? D minor. That's the ultimate guitar <laughs> geek or film geek question. Um, for those who don't understand the question, what's the easiest instrument for somebody to pick up and learn? 
Uh, to start on, I would say probably drums or piano because on the piano you push the key in order to produce a note and on the drums you hit something with a stick to produce a note, but on guitar you have to have a technique, you know, in order to make the, the sound come out of the instrument. But I will say that every instrument is equally difficult to master. Why should parents want their kids to play drums? Um, well, because it, I mean, just with any instrument, it teaches, you know, as we talked about, it teaches patience and it teaches, um, determination and, and, and perseverance. Um, but as far as specifically drums, um, drumming is kind of the, the foundation of the music. And so it also kind of teaches humility because if you want to be a, a, a successful drummer, you know, you have to learn to just really drill the the basics and and sound really good playing something simple as opposed to, you know, showing off your chops. Who would you pay virtually anything to see live in concert and they do have to be living? I can't really say. There's so many artists that I've seen that are amazing and so many that I haven't seen. Um, yeah. If you're in a music store trying out a new guitar or bass, what is your go-to song or lick that you play on that instrument? <laughs> Definitely not Sweet Child of Mine. After working at Guitar Center, I heard so many people play that incorrectly that I never want to hear it again. Um, my go-to lick, I don't know, it depends on what I'm picking up. Um, but usually, I, li I'm a, I love improvisation, so usually I'm just going to start playing some chords and scales and making something up. Desert Island Guitar Amplifier. Mmm, probably something versatile. Um, I'm going to go with a vintage Fender um, because, you know, you can crank it up, but they also sound awesome clean, so I'm going to go with that. That's it for my rapid-fire questions. My answer is not that anyone should care is acoustic guitar to compose, um, Fender for my guitar brand, a Stratocaster is the first guitar that I think people should buy, um, the Milestone in the late 90s in Charlotte. Lollapalooza 92 in Charlotte. Obviously, D minor is the saddest chord. Pearl Jam is, you know, the band of all bands for me. Dark Side of the Moon is the album that everyone should listen to. I think the bass is the easiest instrument to pick up and the hardest to master. Yes, parents should teach their or uh, encourage their kids to play the drums simply because it burns a lot of energy. A Led Zeppelin or the Smiths reunion show I would pay virtually anything for. And the JCM 800 is the Desert Island amp. And my go-to guitar store thing that I will always play, the first solo to November Rain. So it's funny that you said Sweet Child of Mine. Nice. Nobody cares about my answers to those. That's totally just Guitar Geek coming out. So one of the things that I've picked your brains about over the years and that I watched you teach my children is music theory. You have an amazing understanding of music theory. Can you tell our audience what music theory is and how it relates to the process of learning an instrument with your approach? Well, music theory, as scientific as it is, is uh, really quite abstract because when you think about what music is, it is, you know, it's changes in air pressure, it's sound waves. And so music inherently on its own isn't the experience that we have when we hear it. You know, music is really something that happens in the human brain. 
And so the the tensions and the tendencies of the way that music works and what chords want to go to what chords really is something that just naturally occurs, and music theory is our way of trying to break that down in a mathematical way and understand it. Um, and so it's important because if you have the, you know, uh, music theory is kind of the universal language for all instruments. And so if you have an understanding of theory to a certain degree, then you can communicate with other musicians, whether it be through speaking or just through your playing. And so, you know, knowing the way to, you know, because I've heard a number of people say that, oh, well, if you focus on music theory, then you lose your creativity and you're sticking to just rules. And my kind of approach is, well, how can you effectively break the rules if you don't know what they are? You know, um, and so I think that learning music theory is very important to any musician to be able to uh, just communicate with one another and to understand the craft. I love how you describe that. Really, one of the biggest gaps in my musical vocabulary is music theory. I can learn songs by ear, but I don't know why the artist wrote the song in that way or logically why it's progressing the way it is. How does your teaching approach help somebody with the types of gaps that I have? Well, I have sort of a standardized approach as far as teaching theory um, from instrument to instrument, and it will vary from student to student based on what their interests are and how well they're receiving it and if it's something they want to know about in the first place. But typically I start by going through and defining, you know, the intervals, which is the distance from note to note, and then showing how that is the, at the most basic level, the construct behind harmony and how notes relate to one another. Um, And we'll go through all the major scales and we'll go through their relative minor keys and everything um, without getting too technical, just taking it kind of one step at a time and slowly building on it. And I've done it long enough that I've kind of built a roadmap um, for what content to cover in what order. So getting back to Regent Park music lessons, you've mentioned kind of the youngest age that somebody should start learning an instrument is really probably not before like seven or eight, right? Yeah, within reason, you know, it just depends on what it is. For for the way that I teach, you know, because my, my teaching style is a little on the analytical side and trying to gain some understanding. And so that age group uh, for me is when I feel that I can instill the most into And if I remember what you said, there's no limit for how old somebody can be to get started. Right. I think that if it's something that you want to learn how to do, then start working on it. How can our audience reach you to learn more about the types of services you offer or to find out if you have the availability for their needs? Well, I have a Facebook page, Regent Park Music Lessons, or you can reach out uh, to me via email, regentparkmusiclessons at gmail.com. Fred, I cannot thank you enough for having this conversation with me. You know how much I respect you, and I'm really a fan of yours. I think the work that you do, especially with children, is so important in instilling a love and appreciation of music and artistry. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Thank you to our audience for joining us for another episode of the View Charlotte Real Estate and Entertainment Podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode. (music) 